Good afternoon. It is Friday, September 2nd, uh, marking the beginning of Labor Day weekend and the end of summer. And this is Chickie Fitzgerald, the founder of the Executive Girlfriends Group. And my guest today is somebody we have had on a number of times. And Ann Lair is joining us today to talk about her new book, which is Managing the Unmanageable, How to Motivate Even the Most Unruly Employee. And we were just talking a little bit about uh, this amazing cover, which has a guy you know, running down the hall on fire, uh, two other people who are sitting at what, what looks like an interview or, or perhaps a review, and one guy's got his head on the table and... Uh, and uh, then there was another picture, which is obvious delegation of uh, of work, and and everybody's pointing to somebody else. So, Anne, welcome back. Thank you, Chicky. It's a pleasure to be back. So, Anne, when we have talked before, we have talked to you in your role as a generational expert, uh, how to communicate across generations, and and you've got a very interesting background uh, that kind of touches the travel industry, which is where a lot of our members uh, work. Why don't you start out by telling us a little bit about this book and about your co-author, uh, Jezra Kay. Sure. So my background, as you remember, Chicky, is I actually studied business at Cornell University at the hotel school. And after that, had one business in Africa, ran safaris, had another business in Africa, ran safaris. And the reason I bring this up is that was really the genesis for all the work that I do right now. When I was there, I was there for 12 years, had two different businesses, 500 employees, and 42 tribes. And I did not get it, Chicky, when I went over there, what that <laughs> meant by 42 tribes. I was like, oh, they're all Kenyans. I mean, it'll be fine. And I now literally have a talk to you that says what they didn't teach me at Cornell because I <laughs> cried myself to sleep every night. It was just horrible. I was like, oh, my gosh. Like I would say to someone, okay, now you guys work in the bar shift tonight. And they would look at me and they would say, do you see his skin color? I'm like, yeah, dark. And do you see my skin color? I'm like, yeah, maybe a little darker. We don't work <laughs> together. I'm like, oh, my gosh. And so over many years and through lots of courses, I obviously learned the hard way about diversity, how to manage diversity, that type of thing. And that, again, has been the genesis for all that I work that I do right now, the executive coaching and the generational work that you mentioned. And when I start my generational work with any organization, I always say just think of each generation as four different tribes, each with their own language, each with their own culture, each with their own personality type, and you will do fine. And that's how I do everything now. Is, you know, we, although we're all Americans and we're all supposed to think the same way, bottom line is we don't. We think differently. We act differently. So right. since I started doing that work, then uh, someone approached me after my first book and said, can you talk about working with difficult people? And they said, and we want a lot of it to be about generations. And I said, well, that's a big stereotype right there. How about if we have generations as part of it, but it's not the whole book, and the whole book is about how to work with difficult people, which we then later dubbed UEs, which we mean unmanageable employees. So that's a, a long story of how we got to this book. <laughs> and and did you know Jezra from, from uh, some other part of your life, or did you guys get uh, married up through Career Press, your publisher? No, we met probably three or four years ago now, did a workshop together for somebody else. And she's a communication coach. She's 
fabulous with words. She's an ex-jazz singer, very dynamic from New York. And uh, I brought her in to work with me. I do better as a co-author than as a lead author. I get bored writing a book by myself. But when I have someone to balance ideas off of and work together, it's much more fun for me. So a a jazz singer named Jezra, that, that's priceless. <laughs> Well, very good. Well, let's just jump right in. And and I I love the first chapter because I actually think that when I was an employee, I was an unmanageable employee. So are unmanageables made or born? That's a million-dollar question, and everybody has their own philosophy. So my philosophy in this book is that predominantly 90% of UEs are made. And what I mean by that is through organizational work, through previous employers, bosses, supervisors who weren't strong managers, every employee and myself learn certain skills, learn certain habits that are not necessarily the most effective and the most productive, carry them forward. They start to multiply and compound on each other. And after a while, you have someone who thinks that they are doing the right thing and yet are not actually the most effective and productive. Now, there are a few, Chiki, the incorrigibles who really just should not be working in our workforce. However, I predominantly say that most UEs are born, and that's the good news, are made. And that's the good news, because if they're made, that means they learned these habits, and they can unlearn them through the help of good, strong leaders. Well, that's great. And, you know, I, I've told my story before that um, I really was unmanageable in a corporate environment because all along I was an entrepreneur. And all along I was a consultant who uh, would get completely bored with a regular uh, work assignment and having the same thing all of the time. So, um, I, I will be uh, interested to see if that kind of fits in. But why don't you walk us first, before we dive into some of these different types of unmanageables, uh, through what you call the five C's. So the five C's is a framework that Jezra and I created to help people understand what is it about a UE that I need to look at for myself and what do I need to look at with the employee. And so we like things to be memorable, as we all do, and so we created the five C's. And I'll tell them quickly now, and then we can dive into details as we go on. So the first C is commit or quit. This is the only step where the manager is only doing this by herself. And what this is is for the manager has to really commit or quit, like either be ready to put the resources, be ready to put the time, the money, or just, you know what, cut your losses. And we have a whole system, and I call a cost-benefit analysis to help people figure that out. Step two is communicate. And the crux of this is we're not just talking, Shiki. Communicate means communicate there is a problem, because sometimes the UE doesn't even admit there's a problem. Right. And then both parties agree what that problem is, specific details, which, again, it could be three, four conversations, so we're all on the same page. Step three is then to, to clarify goals and roles, understanding an employee's goals, their roles, where they fit into an organization, vitally important to success. Four is to coach. You're then using conversation and dialogue to coach them to success. And then finally, the fifth C is create accountability. And you can create accountability for tangible goals and metrics, you know, certain number of cold calls, certain number of reports, 
as well as we call the intangible soft, such as um, more trustworthy, less gossip, that type of thing. And the five C's are foundational, and they build on each other. So some people say, well, can I just skip to number three? It's like, no. You need to start at one and work all the way down to five. So I am hoping that uh, <laughs> some of these principles also apply kind of in the other direction. Uh, you know, as an entrepreneur and, and starting up yet another uh, early-stage business, um, I know that some of these personalities also apply to investors <laughs> and and that you, you really have to get to that same place where you're you're willing to work with them and, and coach them to be more um, uh, really to help uh, a business grow versus just trying to get out of it what they think uh, they want out of it, which is very much like somebody coming in just to collect a paycheck. So let's let's dive right in. And, you know, I'm going to let you kind of drive how you want to do this. Normally I, I walk through the chapters in order, but and, and perhaps there's a reason for the order, um, you know, of these various types of unmanageables. But are, are there any that are truly incorrigible? Well, every society has some that are truly incorrigible, and those are the people who really are not fit to work in our workforce. But the ones we have listed here, we made 11 what we call composite UEs. Some people might recognize these. Some people might say, my UE's not in here. What do I do? <laughs> and these are just composites of people that we see on a pretty regular basis in our business. Um, again, if the person says, my UE's not here, what we say is, the five C's will work for anybody. And to get back to your point, Chicky, I can't tell you the number of people who said, well, when's the next, boss? When's the next book coming out? I'm like, what new book? And they're like, well, managing the unmanageable boss and right. then managing the unmanageable client and then right. managing the unmanageable vendor. And you know, I'm happy to do that. It would be fun to do that. And as you say, these five C principles will go all the way up, down, sideways, lateral. Once you understand them, you can apply them to any right. industry any person in front of you. Well, I think that's a really important point because each of us, and, and as I look at the group of women that we have in the Executive Girlfriends group, we have everything from the corporate executive who manages a staff of people and who this book directly applies to. We have other people, a lot of people who are in middle-sized businesses who maybe don't have a huge staff, but they are managing unmanageable uh, clients. Um, a couple of the people on the call today are, are consultants that have worked with me for a long time, and we have certainly had our share of unmanageable clients. So, you know, I think as we talk through these various uh, archetypes um, of the unmanageables, that it, it's actually pretty easy to apply that to, uh, you know, whoever it is you're having to deal with, whether it's uh, early stage entrepreneurs like me who have to look at, at potential investors or uh, also the people that we're hiring. So uh, I'll, I'll just start us off with talking about the first one because this is one that I deal with a lot in the consulting world, and that's the excuse maker. Uh, in the early days of my consulting career, when I knew I couldn't do everything by myself, I would bring in somebody who I knew knew the subject, but invariably the dog would eat their homework, their computer would die, <laughs> Um, you know, their car broke down and, and, you know, every excuse in the world why they couldn't make their deadline. Absolutely. So we all know the excuse maker. And, again, at work, at home, community, civic work that we do, philanthropy work that we do. And, again, what I always try to remind people, Shiki, is that most people don't wake up and say, how can I make Anne's life miserable today? 
most people have just learned habits that may have worked at one point and are no longer working. And it's now up to the new organization, unfortunately, to help an employee unlearn those habits to be more effective mm-hmm. and to be more productive. So the right. excuse maker is exactly what you said. The dog ate my homework, probably worked good in the beginning. This is what we call Teflon Jenny, and we have a name for all of our excuse makers. And she's in an accounting firm, and she starts becoming late. She's blaming her colleagues. You know, She even starts kind of blaming the client after a while. And so what this whole chapter is about is for the manager to figure out if he's going to commit or quit. Marcus has to decide, am I going to commit to Jenny or am I going to say, enough, we're out of here? And I don't advocate for either. However, as you know, according to SHRM, the Society for HR Managers, it costs 2.5 times someone's salary to replace them for a usual employee, for someone who has a specialized skill, it's up to four times their salary to replace them. So I always remind people, look, before you say you're quitting, make sure you've really looked at this. And in this chapter, we introduced our cost-benefit worksheet that really helps people understand not only what is the cost of this employee, the cost of what they're not doing, the cost of opportunity costs, the cost of perhaps just direct cost to a client as a revenue stream, that type of thing. And then at the end of this worksheet, we really help people to figure out, well, what's the benefit? If I invest five months, six months in Jenny, what will I get out of it, and is it worth that time and worth that money? Mm-hmm. And most people, when they actually fill out the cost-benefit worksheet, are surprisingly, pleasantly happy. They're like, oh my gosh, like it really is worth it. And some people are like, you know what, it's just not worth it. It's costing me too much. Again, I don't advocate either way, but I do advocate do the worksheet, figure it out, and then either commit, I'm going to commit five or six months to this, or I'm going to quit. And then that's where we have the last chapter, that helps people walk through that process of quitting their employees. I love that. And and again, when she talks about this being worksheets, um, you know, there are actually places to fill in the blank uh, with hours per week and and the six month cost of these things. So, uh, incredibly practical from a tool perspective. Thanks so much. And then that's the only chapter we actually have on the committer quit because it's it's pretty cut and dry. Fill out the worksheet, figure it out, and again, right. and it applies to each of them. Exactly. Then we start getting into the second C, which is communicate. And then we have a few chapters on communicate. We have the egomaniac. We have lots of other people in here. And what this is all about is, again, communicating what is the problem and that there is a problem. So I may think there's a problem as a manager, Chicky, with Mary. And I may say to Mary, hey, Mary, I think we have a, a problem here. She's like, well, we don't have a problem. What are you talking about? Well, I think we might have a problem here. And here's what I think the problem is. I think that, for example, uh, perhaps you would say it a little differently, but that your ego uh, is impacting the team, and we need to talk about that. Well, what ego? I don't have an ego. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm the superstar here. (laughs) (laughs) It happens all the time, right, Vicky? And so, well, just I'm so fearful of reading this book because I'm afraid I'm going to see myself <laughs> in every single one of them. <laughs> so again, just getting the person to, and this could be one, two, three, four, five conversations. And in these chapters, right. we have other tools. One's called the perception gap tool. One is called the trade-off tool to help facilitate the conversation. So that eventually, at the end of step two, everybody in the room is admitting that there is a problem and everybody is in concrete agreement of what the problem is. Because, again, Mary might say, well, it's all Ruby's fault. If Ruby would just behave better, I would be a better employee. 
And so, again, we're not looking at the symptom of Ruby. We're looking at what's going on with Mary, and we're digging down to figure out what's the real problem here. So although this step sounds very easy, it often is a few conversations and a few very heartful conversations to say, we got a problem. I'm not saying you per se are the problem. It's your behavior that's impacting the team. Can we move on? So, so you're still thinking about that, another, Judy, aren't you? Well, I, I am. No, what I'm loving is that you give concrete examples of these really, really tough conversations, and you actually show the dialogue. And I think one of the hardest things, particularly for those of us who don't like to manage people, and I'm very definitely one of those. I, I typically, in a corporate environment, was what was called an individual contributor, and I'm sure that wasn't by accident. <laughs> um, but it gives the dialogue. And I think sometimes if we can just visualize what that dialogue is and that, that it doesn't have to have a fearful outcome, uh, or an uncomfortable outcome that you can actually get to resolution, um, you know, that is really important. So, uh, again, for those of you who have to deal with people on a regular basis, you know, I'm just seeing so many practical things in this book. I can't wait to dig in. So Thanks talk to that about some of the other ones. So so the grumbler, the complaints of Aziz. The, compl- the grumbler, wow, there's lots of grumblers going on here. So the grumbler, you're going to use a trade-off tool here. And what the trade-off tool is, it lets you meet the UE halfway. Because basically what happens is is you're both deciding and saying out loud where you want to go. So for example, in this situation, we have Aziz, who is our UE, and we have Mary, who is our manager. And at this point, Mary thinks that Aziz's grumbling is causing problems for the team. Aziz thinks that that is not the case at all. He just thinks that everybody else isn't doing a good enough job. So the trade-off tool basically lets the two have a conversation to say, this is what I'm looking for. This is how I want to think about things. And it might say, I communicate best by uh, phone, or I communicate best by text, or I communicate best by IM, by email. And you go through this whole list, Jackie, to help people understand how to even set the parameters to start a conversation. Now that I understand, for example, that Aziz prefers text, and prefers short conversations, doesn't like face-to-face, instead would prefer to be listened and to be heard to, and he understands that I prefer things a different way, you, you see the gap in front of you like, oh my God, we got a huge gap. How are we <laughs> going to bridge this gap? And then again, walking through in the book, this is how we're going to do it. Well, y'all, for this conversation, we're going to do face-to-face. You okay with that? Not doing text? Yeah, I guess I'm okay with that. For this conversation, we're going to be talking about the behavior of Negativity. You okay with that? And basically setting the ground rules and the parameters to have the conversation about, now that we're agreeing we're talking face-to-face about negativity, now we can have the real conversation about, well, where do you see negativity in the team? Here's where I see negativity in the team. Here's what I define as grumbling. What do you define as grumbling? And it lets you have what I call a picket fence around a conversation so that people can't kind of sneak out because we've agreed up front in the trade-off tool how we're going to be actually having a conversation. And then from there, getting to the main point of step two, we have a problem, here's what the problem is. And then from there, you can go on to step three, which is clarifying goals and roles. And in every chapter, Chicky, we have the last part called our hot tips. And we actually play out those scenes a little bit more. So we say, if Aziz says this, then say that. 
And if the Z says this, then say that. And we list out, I can't remember, 10 or 12 different ways that the scene could play out, and then our recommendations of how to answer in case you're stumped and like, oh, my God, what did I say to that? We've got it listed right here for you. Oh, that is so great. So uh, an example of that is she's got here that he says, I'm just blowing off steam. And then the response from Mary is, well, what's the impact of that on the team? So getting him to think about the impact. That That is really, really great. So you started talking about the egomaniac and uh, and Ruby having this $2 million ego. So she obviously <laughs> believes she's a superstar. Yep, and then that happens. She is a superstar. She brings in the money. She's the one who courts the donors and who makes sure that money comes in. And that's great for an organization, not always great for a team. If someone's behavior starts to really become too big, the rest of the team obviously has feelings about that, then you start to get schisms and silos and people don't want to work with her and finger pointing and all that type of stuff. So again, this chapter is about communicating, and we here we talk about the perception gap tool. And what I mean by that is a perception gap is where what I intend is not perceived the same way by you. So for example, if I intend to be concise, be articulate, uh, be very bottom line and direct, I intend to do that because I'm task-driven, I want the organization to move forward, for example. The perception might be, and I've actually gotten this feedback, Chicky, is that I actually can be appear blunt, that I'm not friendly, really? and that I'm rude. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, what? No, I'm just trying to be professional. I'm trying to be direct. I resemble that remark, Anne. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, and that's the perception gap. So sometimes just putting out that perception gap in a you know, delicate way so that you're not offending anybody to say, right. hey, Ruby, you know, are you aware that this is how you're being perceived? And again, we have a tool and a worksheet here that you actually use a visual diagram where the intention is on the top, the perception is at the bottom, in between we have zero to 100. The person then puts where they think they are, then you put where they think you are, and that's the bridge for your conversation. It's like, wow, look at that. You think that everybody understands you at 20%. I think the gap is closer to 80%. What do you make of that? And it just helps them to see, really? Is that how people perceive me? And helping them to move forward into finally communicating, there is a problem. Here's the problem. Can we move on now to step three? Hmm. Well, in the time that we have left, which is just a few minutes, um, why don't you pick one of the others that is, is just your favorite uh, to tackle or one that is has been the hardest for you? I think my favorite, or at least one that I get the most questions about, is, num- is Chapter 8, The Do-Gooder. And the do-gooder in this situation is Bella, and, and she's just you know fabulous. Everybody goes to her. They can rely on her. She brings in the cake and the cupcakes. And everybody says to me, well, what's wrong with that? How could that be a UE? Well, to the extreme, when this person is always doing that and everybody's always going to that person instead of going to HR or instead of going to their mentor, this person doesn't get anything done, and this person thinks that that is their role. So this chapter is about step three, clarifying goals and roles. And if your role is to be the project manager and you're really becoming the informal HR manager, we've got a problem here. So it's a great conversation for people to say, well, there's nothing wrong with being a do-gooder. I'm just helping the organization. I'm just helping my colleagues. I'm just lending a helpful hand. Yes, and 
let's look at your actual goals, what you've actually achieved, and how you're getting your work done. And let's talk about your role of are you HR manager or are you project manager? And where do you really want to go? And can, how can I help you make sure that you get there in the next year, two years, whatever the timeline may be? Mm. Yeah, that that one's a very interesting role because, uh, like you said, they think they're doing the right thing but not getting their own job done. Exactly, and, and so people love them. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, take us through one more, and then let's uh, talk about uh, the last chapter, which is uh, when it's time to call it quits. Sure. Let's talk about the loose cannon. The loose cannon is sometimes a conundrum for people. This is Chapter 6, and the loose cannon is basically your superstar who's gone south. And then this is where we're talking still about Step 3, clarify goals and roles. And in this case, Andrew is a superstar. Everybody loves him. He's hitting all his goals. He's doing fantastic. There's been a strategic shift, no surprise in our economy, for the past two years. The organization is moving in a different direction. Through some poor communication, Andrew didn't understand it all. He's now going toward different goals of what the new strategic shift is. And everybody's like, wait a minute, what's going on? He's getting frustrated because he's not getting the kudos anymore. The, the powers that be are frustrated because he's not, quote, performing anymore. And this is what happens when you're superstar goes south, becomes a loose cannon because he's all of a sudden got the respect in the ear of people and all of a sudden he says, well, wait a minute, why are we shifting strategy? Why isn't someone involving this conversation? I'm the superstar. I need to know about this. And in this case, we talk about how to communicate and to acknowledge the role that the manager or the powers that be may have in that and then to start talking about the goals diagnostic chart. And we have a whole chart there that helps the manager diagnose the goals of the organization, the goals of the team, and the goals of the UE to make sure that everything is aligned. Because if one of those three is misaligned, that's when you start to have a UE crop up. Hmm. So tell us what happens when when you've gone through all of this and and you know you still just have to get to that place where it's time to call it quits. And this does happen. I mean, I wish I could say that, you know, this five-step program is foolproof and everybody is always happy ever after. And sometimes either the manager or the UE says, you know what, we got to call it quits. And that's what Chapter 13 is. Depending who your UE could be, the slacker, the rudenick, the gossip, it's time to call quits. You've done your best. You've worked for six months. And for whatever reason, it's just not going to be working out. And in this case, again, we recommend you do the cost-benefit analysis to make sure that it's worth it. And sometimes you say to salvage, we call it a salvage, isn't worth it. And so we have a lot of tips here. We're certainly not HR legal people. We can't right. give you for each state what to do, what industry, what to do. But in general, when it's time to call it quits, here's our recommendations of how to have the conversation. Here's our recommendations to who needs to be part of that conversation to make it as smooth as possible. And right. as we are speaking right now, actually one of my clients is calling it quits with one of her employees, and it's a very difficult conversation. And just having, as you say, a script, a tool in hand to walk through it makes people feel more at ease to say, I don't like this, I don't want to do right. this, it's the best thing for the organization, let me walk through this script, hash out my own version of the script, and use that as I go through this difficult time. Right. You know, uh, while you say that you guys are not HR professionals, it seems to me that if you've actually gone through this 
and filled out the different charts and, and actually walked the employee through the coaching, it actually provides a level of documentation that probably does meet the requirements uh, you know, in most states for, you know, doing that kind of work and giving them, uh, you know, the benefit of the doubt uh, in, in sewing into them what needs to be done. And if, if they just can't or won't uh, respond, then, you know, you've got what you need to uh, to actually cut them loose. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's what it's all about, as you and I both know. It's a UE. It's, it's someone who is, you know, somewhat questionable. And so some people are like, well, I'll just get rid of the guy. And simply like, okay, we're going to give them one last chance. And I've been in both those cases. And so one last chance does mean you're going to have to document things in case that one last chance right. doesn't work out. Right. And, and you know, because generations are, are what you are known for, I know at the end of this book you've got an appendix A of how to manage three generations. Is there one generation that is more likely uh, to work through things versus just uh, cutting loose without uh, investing that time? It's a great question, Chicky. And as I said earlier, every generation has its own personality. So as a quick synopsis, boomers tend to be very optimistic. They tend to be very uh, interaction-focused, face-to-face. Connection is very important to them. Gen Y is the same. Gen Y and boomers actually have a lot in common. The difference is their methodology and their approach, that so they're going to be doing it more virtually, but the same type of thing, making a difference, connection is very important to them. Gen X is the very different animal, and I'm Gen X, and we are very focused on metrics, on laser results, on getting it done very quickly, that type of thing. So you can see automatically where there's going to be a clash. So Gen X is going to pay very close attention to the what's it worth worksheet and really do those numbers and do those charts diligently. And so that may sway them one way or the other. And boomers and wise are going to want to have more of a conversation. And so the other C's and the other chapters are going to be more benefit to them. But I wouldn't say there's one that's necessarily going to call it quits either. I think they all have their different strengths that they're going to be looking at with a different lens as they look at their UE. Well, Anne, this has been really great, and I can't wait to dig into it. Like I said, I'll put aside my fears that I'm going to see myself throughout every <laughs> chapter. But uh, this is why I work for myself. It makes it a whole lot easier. I can I can fire myself, I guess, uh, or coach myself. And that's what I'm hoping is that it will actually give me some good tips for myself uh, to become a better leader. So I would like, uh, we do have a couple of other people who have joined the call, and so if anybody does have any questions uh, before we stop uh, recording, Carolyn, hey, welcome. Do you have us on mute? I do. <laughs> okay. I thought since you're the one of us who who, uh, who actually actively manages people right now, I just wanted to make sure if you had any questions of Anne. I know you missed the first couple of minutes, but uh, I just thought I would give you an opportunity. No, I, ha- I have a couple of those situations, so it's interesting, and I can't wait to read the book. I'm going to download it if, it, if it's Kindleized. It's Kindle. I'm not sure it's out exactly. It'll be very soon in the next week. It's usually six weeks after the published date, which was mid-July. So it should be there soon. Oh, good, good, good. So yeah, it's yeah, it's very really practical, Carolyn. You're get, you're gonna love it. It's it's um, easily ap- ap- applicable to uh, to any one of these situations. Wow. 
All right. Well, Anne, thank you so much for joining us again. It's great to have you back. And uh, I, like I said, I'm just heading into a new venture where I'm going to be uh, heading up a team before long. So uh, it will be good to put my head back in this. Oh, thank you so much, Vicki. It's been a pleasure. And good luck with your new venture. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Take care. Have a great weekend. Okay. Thank you. Okay, I just turned off the recording, but I didn't hear the stop, so hang on one second.